In the first of three sections in his second letter, Peter writes what it means to be a Christian. It sets a stage for what will come next, and that is his warnings about false teachers in chapter 2, and then the certainty of the return of Jesus Christ in chapter 3. In writing about what it means to be a Christian, Peter sets the foundation in verses 3 and 4, as we have seen, the power of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the fact that we live in what has been called a a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic age, in which people, quote-unquote, believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life, who believe that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. They believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. They believe that God need not particularly be involved in people's lives, except when there's a problem. Lastly, they believe that good people go to heaven when they die. Well, what Peter writes in verses 3 and 4 is foundational. The power, his divine power has given us everything for life and godliness and his great and precious promises. These are seen now as unnecessary because, after all, all we're supposed to do is be good and nice and fair to one another. And God isn't really that involved in our lives except when we get into trouble. I think this should be a strong indicator to us that what Peter writes about is just as important to us as it was to his original audience, our brothers and sisters back in the first century. What is the purpose of divine power? Well, Jesus has not only set up high standards for us as his people, we're to live a godly life, but he has also given us the resources that we might meet, or not meet, but come up to that standard of living a godly life. So he has given us everything that we need. As I've mentioned before, some people tend to think of God's power in terms of the miraculous during the ministry of Jesus, and that is not mistaken. But Peter sees Jesus' great power as at work in the lives of seemingly meaningless people, you know, just average people on the street who have given their lives to Jesus. They're not the Messiah, they're not apostles, but they are people who follow Jesus. And then he speaks of the promises. What are the great and precious promises? That you may participate in the divine nature and that you may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In this section, remember, Peter is telling his readers what it means to be a Christian, a child of God. In creation, we are made in the image of the creator, but that image has been ruined, has been marred by sin. In redemption, we are being recreated in the image of the Savior. As I said last week, this isn't simply a matter of sort of cleaning us up or resuscitating us, somehow shocking us with the paddles and bringing us back to life. In the same way that resurrection is not resuscitation, it's transformation, in the same way when we are saved, when God saves us, he doesn't sort of jolt us to life. He gives us new life. He gives us his life. It is transformation. We have been given the life and nature of the Creator and Savior, or as Peter puts it in the first verse of this letter, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, with this new life and great and precious promises, there can be a temptation and a danger to think 
that with this new relationship with God, we shouldn't think of obligation or obedience or laws or rules. That somehow this is just such a wonderful thing that you sort of sully it. You, you somehow ruin it by saying there are certain things that you're supposed to do. And what happens, and particularly when and where we live, people begin to think of Christian or being a Christian as very interior and very private with having little or no implications for one's public life. Well, in Scripture, what we find, and we find it here in Second Peter, that belief should not be separated from behavior, that theology and ethics go hand in hand. Now, there are, in fact, people who hold to a Christian ethic. They, they say they try to follow the Bible, but they don't necessarily believe in God. And I think Peter would say this is not right. This cannot be. The two go hand in hand. In looking at what it means to be a Christian, we find that faith in Jesus Christ is precisely where Peter begins in verse number five. So he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Faith is a gift. It is the gift. It is the starting point. We are to live in that light and that reality. And then from the second half of verse number five through verse number seven, Peter gives a list of seven virtues, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And rather than reviewing this list, I would just mention one thing. In ending with love, one might imagine that Peter had somehow forgotten that the one right before it, number six, was brotherly kindness or brotherly affection, the word Philadelphia. And that somehow he had forgotten that, maybe got distracted, and when he came back, he said love again. It's sort of like you have brotherly love and then love again. But as I said, Peter knows precisely what he is doing. The sixth virtue, brotherly kindness, pulls us out of our caves of private spirituality, where we can imagine that all these things he talks about, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, I can do this by myself. I don't, I don't have to be around other Christians. I can do this alone. Well, that's not the case with brotherly kindness. You need to be with your brothers and sisters in order to show them this affection. Well, some would say, well, okay, I'll do that. I'll hang out with Christians and show them brotherly affection. But that's it. Well, the seventh virtue, love, will not allow us to stay in the congregation. It pulls us out into the human community at large. The love that Peter has in mind is for those who are not our brothers and sisters, but those who are made in the image of God. And in this, we are to follow the example of Jesus. We stopped last Sunday at verse number seven which is unfortunate as Peter is not finished writing about what it means to be a Christian. More than that, he is not finished writing about the qualities or growing in the qualities that mark the divine nature that we have been given. By the way, this is something I didn't mention last Sunday, but I think it is clear that the seven virtues that Peter lists are among the qualities of the divine nature. This is the way that God is. The nature that is given to us when we become the children of God, in which we are to participate, these are the virtues that reflect that. In the same way that when one is born and one has life, 
breathing is a sign of that, so these seven virtues are a sign of the fact that we have been given the divine nature, we have been given new life. And what follows, what we'll look at today, in verses 8 and 9, Peter points to the results of growing in these seven virtues. First of all, he deals with it in a positive way, if we make every effort, he says, and then in a negative way, if we fail to make every effort. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 8 and 9. For if you possess these qualities, these seven qualities he's just mentioned, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Now, as we start, let's be clear about something. No Christian can ever claim to have arrived as the model believer. In fact, I would argue that one of the marks that a person is maturing in the Christian faith is there is a growing dissatisfaction with our level of godliness. The illustration has been given that the closer one draws to the light, the clearer one can see flaws. And the more that we grow in grace, and as we grow closer to God, the more we see our failings and our sins. But rather than causing us to despair, which would seem natural, it should in fact cause us to possess these qualities in increasing measure. The English Standard Version says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, we are to possess them because we have the divine nature and they are to increase in our lives. Peter does not say that we are to passively wait for these things to magically grow on their own. We are in fact to make every effort to possess them. They are to increase. The word possess, by the way, in Greek, is an estate agent's word. In the noun form, it means property over, over which one has full possession, therefore is at one's full disposal. If we possess these virtues and they are growing, they are increasing, then Peter says they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for me at least, immediately alarms went off with verse number 8. Because living when and where we do, there tends to be talk of the work ethic, the Christian work ethic or the Protestant work ethic. And words like effective and productive very much fit into that genre where we want people to be effective, we want them to be productive, we want them to be successful. It is thought that truly practical Christianity will be effective and productive. People want to support ministries that are effective and productive. People want to be involved in churches and church projects in the community and in the congregation, which are effective and productive. The problem is, if you were to ask someone, how do you know that something is effective? How do you know that it is productive? Oftentimes you find that unbiblical standards are used to measure these things. And so people begin to speak of success and failure. What does Peter mean by this? By the way, before we get on with that, because labor in our society has become a commodity, I think effectiveness, efficiency, productivity, these are very much 
what governed people's decisions. And that thinking has come into the church. And when you read a verse like this, you're like, there you go. Peter wants us to be efficient. He wants us to be effective and productive. But what is he talking about? You will notice that he doesn't end with being, when he says that we are to be effective and productive. Rather, he says that we will be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The seven virtues that Peter listed are not to be added to our lives to ensure some practical productivity. If you do these, then you will really be efficient as a Christian. But rather, we will become more and more like Jesus Christ. These qualities are the divine nature. Therefore, we are to add them into our lives. We are to make every effort to possess them and to grow in them. We are to seek to abound not in successful accomplishments, but in Christ-likeness. This, this idea actually is not unique to verse number 8. It begins in verse number 3, and the theme runs all the way through. In verse number 3, we are told where life and godliness comes through our knowledge of him. In verse number 4, his great and precious promises enable us to participate in the divine nature. And now in verse 8, that we might become effective and productive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, God want, what God wants in our lives is an increasing ability to think and act like Jesus Christ. That is what he desires. We see this throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In 1 John 4.17, in this way love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. This is what Peter is calling us to. Verse number eight, as I said, is put in positive terms. It's actually a bit confusing because it's a double negative, you know, that you will not be ineffective, that you will not be unproductive. In verse number nine, what Peter's saying is clearly in negative terms. If we fail to pursue and possess the virtues he has listed, if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. If one does not make every effort to add to their faith that which Peter has listed, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, well, there are consequences if we do not seek to possess these things. One cannot fail to live as God intends and things be normal. That just is not possible. At least three consequences are mentioned, nearsightedness, blindness, and amnesia. One is forgotten. The first two present a puzzle of sorts, nearsighted and blind. And in reality, in Greek, the, the order is reversed, blind and nearsighted. And well, if you're blind, you can't be nearsighted. It, it, it seems um, a bit confusing. The King James is very helpful here that the person is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. This is what I think Peter is saying. One who does not pursue the virtues listed in verses 5, 6, and 7 is blind to the present, is nearsighted re with regard to the future, 
and has forgotten the past. These three things stand together. One is blind to the place of goodness and knowledge, self-control, all of these virtues. If one is blind to these things that should be in our lives now in the present, well, then one will fail to appreciate what is to come. One is nearsighted. One cannot see very far off as to what is coming in the future. The fact that there is a future, that God has a plan for the future, and that Jesus is the key to that future. But then one has forgotten, because we, you know, Peter's thinking of walking, the, that which is behind, we can't see, we don't have eyes in the back of our head, but we forget what happened in the past. And I, I find it interesting how Peter puts it. Um, he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Um, Peter could have very easily left off the word past, that one has been for, cleansed from one's sins. But I think he's trying to make the point of the, of the present, of the future, and the past, that if you do not presently work to possess these virtues, you're not going to see very far ahead, and you're going to completely forgot, forget what has happened behind you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, in his sermon on this passage, said that the whole purpose of the incarnation, or that one will forget the whole purpose and of the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ and the agony on the death on the cross and the glorious resurrection. Such a person is utterly inconsistent with himself. He says he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ in order that he may be delivered from sin, and yet he continues to sin. Remembering this cleansing is part of a clear memory of what has happened in the past. There is this holistic present, future, and past. And this continues in the next two verses. Look, if you would, at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are two words, I think, that may trouble people here. The first one is election. The other calling is perhaps not so troubling. But election has a long biblical pedigree. We hear it in the Old Testament with regard to Israel, God's people. We hear it in the New Testament with regard to the church, also God's people. Our election is God's sovereign choice of us in Christ before the creation of the world. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I think the problem that many people have when you speak of such things, election and being chosen, is that they imagine that it means a cool, indifferent, capricious God who's just sort of eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and that's how he got a people for himself. This is not the case. And Peter's readers know that because this is the second letter. In the first letter, at the very beginning of the letter, Peter addresses this. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I thought we would go over this again just to remind you of what we saw in those verses. This is the basis of identity for the readers of Peter's letter, in fact, of all God's people. 
and Peter spells it out in Trinitarian terms. He speaks of the origin, how we became the people of God, the manner, and the goal. First, we are chosen because God foreknew us, but he's writing to these people, God the Father foreknew them, having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This does not mean that somehow God magically, because he knows all things, looked into the future and he said, oh, these are the people who will believe in Jesus, therefore I will choose them to be my people. As we've seen often in the last couple of years, knowledge in the Bible always has action attached to it. That is, it is impossible for God to simply know something and not do anything about it. Knowledge also has a very personal aspect to it. It's seen, if nothing else, we see, particularly in the Old Testament, to describe the relation between a husband and wife. In the modern era, however, we look at knowledge in a very different way. And with that view of knowledge in coming to Scripture, it says something that, well, it says something very different than what it actually means. In the modern era, we find unbridled optimism about what we can know. Actually, there's unbridled optimism about so many things, but, but particularly what we can know. And one of the things that has happened is people imagine that they know so much because they have detached themselves from the thing that they know. If you look biblically, knowing involves a relationship. Well, if you don't need the relationship, then you can end up knowing many, many more things because you don't have to have a relationship with them. You can just simply know them. They become information. So in the modern era, the optimistic view of knowledge is that here I am, I am the knower, and if you wish, the chair is the thing that I know. I don't have to have a relationship with it. I simply know that it is a chair, and I can describe it to you. It's empirical observation. And then I can look at this pew and this pew, and I can look at so many things and quote-unquote know many things. Well, with that view of knowledge, when we read of God knowing or foreknowing, we might imagine that no relationship is involved. It is, in fact, it would become a very cool, detached, almost capricious type of knowing. But in fact, that is not the correct way of knowing, the correct view of knowing. Biblically, the process of knowing acknowledges that there is a relationship between the one who knows and the thing or the person who is known. Although I am not the chair, I'm Damon, I'm not the chair, it doesn't mean that somehow there is no connection between us, that here I stand with the capital N, or capital K, sorry, knower, and there it is, lowercase k, the thing that is known. And that I, we don't have to have any relationship. Well, the Christian view is not that we are the same, we're not, but there is, in fact, something that connects us together. When Peter writes of the foreknowledge of God that makes a person a child of God, the immediate objection is it seems so unfair. Paul addresses this in Romans 9. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It is not capricious. It is God's grace and mercy. We need to recognize something. Without God's knowledge, without God's foreknowledge and his action, no one, no one in this world would ever become a child of God. We have been cast out of his presence. We are prevented from entering the garden again. Only he has the knowledge that makes it possible for us to become his people. The second thing that Peter says is that God's acceptance is brought about by the Holy Spirit, that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit does not depend on man's desire or effort. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift that God has given us. It marks us as the people of God. The third thing is the purpose of God's action in choosing us is seen that we, in the fact that we are to obey him for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. God's knowing, God's foreknowing, is never without a purpose. It isn't just like, so we can get to go to heaven. There is, in fact, a purpose here in this life, and it is that we would obey him. We would be brought into a relationship. This is seen by the fact of the sprinkling of blood. Again, we talked about this when we looked at 1 Peter 1. It recalls what happened at Sinai, recorded in Exodus chapter 24. After Moses had received the commandments from God, he went out and had young men sacrifice animals, and then they took the blood, they built an altar, well, they built an altar, and they sprinkled half of the blood on the altar and the other half on the people. This is the image that Peter has in mind, that God knew us by his spirit, he has saved us, and it is the sprinkling of the blood. This is the purpose, that we would be obedient to what Christ has called us to do. This leads to the second word, by the way, going back to 2 Peter 1 that people might have trouble with, and that is calling. As I mentioned before in verse number 3, it is tempting and it is natural to assume that what Peter's talking about is when we got saved, that we felt God calling us, we felt him pulling us to himself, saying, be my child. But that's not what Peter's speaking of. He's speaking of the fact that when Jesus was here, during his earthly ministry, he called his people to himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That same call is true for us today. We respond and may have responded at different ways in different times. But the calling came when Jesus was here on earth. So we're to make our calling an election, sure. But this raises two other issues. First of all, this does not mean that we are to be passive. He says, be all the more eager. See, as human beings, I think, particularly when it comes to religion, we, choose, we, we prefer one of two options. Either we will be active or we will be passive. Peter points to God through Jesus as providing everything we need. That sounds like God has done all the act, acting. All I need to do is be passive and just sort of receive it. But then he says that we are to make we are to make every effort and we are to be all the more eager. Then the other question is, for whom are we trying to make this calling an election sure? It is for ourselves. 
in Greek, and our Greek scholars are in the back room, this is in the middle voice. In English, for the most part, we don't have this. We have active and passive. Either you're doing something or it's being done to you. In Greek, there's actually a middle voice in which you are doing something to yourself. Okay. In English, by the way, we don't have a voice, but we call it an intransitive verb. You know, when, when something grows, if you say, well, uh, I planted a tomato and the tomato plant grew. Was that an active or is that a passive? It's sort of in between. Let's be clear about something. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. We are given the gift of faith. But neither are we then to be passive. And here is mystery and here is paradox, which, by the way, we don't like. We want things to be clear. No mystery, no, you know, no paradox, please. But this is the nature of what it means to be a Christian. It is neither active nor passive. It's both and. We are, in fact, to do these things. Having been given something, we are then to do. Peter continues by saying, "For if you do these things, you will never fall. You will notice that Peter does not say you will never sin. Because James tells us in James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. So Peter does not say that we will never sin. He does not imply either that we have no responsibility. This goes back to verse number nine. You know, the, our perception of the past, the present, and the future is faulty and incorrect. Okay. There's a failure to recognize the reality of God's grace in the present, God's grace in the past, God's grace in the future. It is God's grace in all three arenas that Peter has been writing about. In the present, God's grace enables us. He has given us everything we need, present tense, for life and godliness. And he has given us, for now, his great and precious promises. In the past, our calling and our election. God chose us before the world was created. Jesus called us when he was here on earth. And the future is, Peter says, you will never fall. This view of the future continues in verse number 11, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here, Peter's pointing to the future, which the nearsighted cannot see because they are unproductive in their knowledge of Jesus. The language of the NIV is wonderful here. It paints a beautiful picture, but it misses something. The, the English Standard Version has, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mentioned last Sunday when we looked at verse number five, the verb regarding our actions, our responsibility. We are to add, we are to add, we are to add. The word itself is epikores gesate. Chorus there is the word from which we get the English chorus, as in a choir. It came from the image of a rich patron saying to his townmates, I think we should have a choir, I think we should have a chorus, and I will pay for it. I'll foot the bill. And this would be a very generous person who was 
making it possible for a choir to sing on special public occasions. Well, in time, that image faded, but the word remained. And the emphasis is on generosity of action. So when we add to our faith knowledge, we are not to be cheap or tight about it. We are to abundantly add to it. And if you wonder, well, just how abundant, how abundantly am I to add, add or add to it? Well, then we look at verse number 11, because there the same word is used. Richly provided for you. Jesus has richly provided. It's the same word. I think Peter knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 5, verse 11, sort of bookends of this passage. He speaks of a generosity of action. It is seen in what God has provided for us that we might be the children of God in the past, right now in the present, and in the future. And that future, if you look at verse number 11, is eternal. Which is appropriate because we have the divine nature. God has given us new life, eternal life, and Jesus will richly provide for us all that we need in eternity. Perhaps the problem is mine, but it seems to me that people want a system of belief in which either they do nothing or they do everything. And the Christian faith is neither of these two options. We cannot do everything, cannot save ourselves. We are not to do nothing. It's a double negative, but we are to do something. Having been given life, the, the divine nature, we are to make every effort. We are to be all the more eager. I've heard the objection made that if, you, if people believe in the doctrine of election, this will make them lazy, that it will make them proud, that they will be proud that they are the chosen people of God and they won't do anything. That is entirely possible, but it is a misunderstanding of what God has done alone. On the other hand, people have said, if you tell people that they need to do something, then that will also lead to pride because they'll say, look at what I've done. And that is also possible, but it is a misunderstanding of what God has done in our lives. He has given us new life. He has called us to be his children. It is only by his grace that this is possible. And now that we have been called, we are to do the things that we are called to do. And what is that precisely? To follow the example of Jesus. Look at Jesus, and what do you see? Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. You might say, wait a minute. Maybe the others, but I'm not so sure about the knowledge. I'm not so sure about the knowledge. It's a wonderful passage in Hebrews 5 that speaks of Jesus, that he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He learned, he came to know obedience. When we look at Jesus, the great mystery, God in the flesh, we see a man born into the world as we are, 
And we see these qualities in him. And we hear this man calling us, follow me. And Peter says, that's what we're to do. We're to make every effort. We're to be all the more eager to do these things. This is what it means to be a Christian. I hope you can remember these things. Because when we get to chapter 2, we will find that this is exactly what is not true of the false teachers. They, they do not have these qualities. And Peter is able to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. And look at these people. It's quite obvious they are false teachers. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would confess that there's a part of us that, that doesn't like paradox, that doesn't like mystery. We want it black and white, yes or no. Either you save us and we have nothing to do with it, or in fact, we are the ones who earn our salvation. And yet what we see in Peter, what it means to be a Christian is that, yes, in fact, you have given us life. And with that life, we are to do things. We are, in fact, to pursue lives of virtue. We are to make every effort to add these things, these qualities of the divine nature. By your grace, we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I pray that in the days to come, we can think on these things, think them through, and the implications of what it means in our lives. And perhaps, by your grace, make our calling and election sure. To ask ourselves, am I a child of God, or why is it that these things perhaps are not present in my life? Why are these things not increasing? I thank you how patient you are with us. May we look to you for strength. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.